Do you know how much restraint it's taking right now for me not to quote Monty Python? <laughs> Man, I can't wait to say my punchline. And welcome to Armchair Theology alongside Ross Furio. I am Clay Farrington, and today we are through the Leviticus-sized wall, and we are moving into the Book of Numbers. Oh yeah, it's like crumbled bricks and concrete behind us. We just busted through that wall. And uh, what was your big uh, pun there? That you oh yeah, to yeah, throw yeah. In right all right, at the all right, all right, ready friends, for this? It's time for numbers. Get out your calculators and let's crunch some numbers. Oh, man. Ooh, that's good. That's so good. That's good. You are the pun king. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Well, guys, just want to say thank you to those of y'all listening. And a couple other things. I got a, <clears throat> a great friend that commented this week and just said how how in a time when it might be difficult to invite folks to church, maybe your church isn't meeting in person or something like that, that he felt like this was still a way that he could fulfill the Great Commission, you know, maybe little bit of evangelism just by sharing uh, this podcast. And man, I just want to say I really, really appreciate it. And that, that goes out to Sid, buddy. You know yeah. Who you are. Yeah. And I know, I mean, I know we have at least one or two groups in, in Washington that are using this as a way to do a Bible study, which is awesome. I mean, invite your friends, guys. Have side conversations with them about it. Uh, yeah. And, and let this kind of spur you on, spur your curiosity and your desire to to learn about the scriptures. Like, share, give us a review. I just realized that a review is a thing. Like you could go on Apple Podcasts and write a review. And uh, man, I think I definitely should do that. If you don't do it, then we're going to resort to writing reviews ourselves we'll and different it usernames. Yeah, so that's what we'll do. We'll make up you really have one of two options. They can either be actual reviews or me and Clay can make like six different Apple accounts and write reviews for ourselves. And one more thing about this is just, guys, we are about to get into some hard sledding. I mean, we made a lot of jokes about getting through Leviticus and things like that. But y'all, we are leaving Leviticus and literally going into a book called Numbers. And I mean, first of all, I, I hope Leviticus produced more fruit for you and your life than you expected it to. Right? I mean, hopefully I think it was really meaningful. Hopefully that's where you find yourself. But you're right, Clay. I mean, numbers is And the gonna, truth of the matter is the Old Testament is going to take us almost 3 years. It's going to be like 2 2 years and like 8 or 9 months to get through. Y'all, it gets long. There are some of the books that get really long and and I think if we all do this together, it'll really help us get through because then we can all say at the end, look, I read through the whole Bible and like didn't just read through it. I engaged intentionally through it and, yeah. and really thought about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So share, like all that stuff. Let's jump right. Let's crunch some numbers. Let's crunch Ross. some numbers. Oh my goodness. Here we are. So, I mean, that's what we start out with though in chapter one, a census, right? Yeah, we're going to go through chapter six today and you're right. The first chapter is literally a census. And I mean, you said before we hit record that really there are two reasons that you take a census. The first is for tax purposes and the second is for military. And this is pretty clear that they're taking a census before they leave Sinai so they can militarize their people because there's going to be some battles that are involved. They're definitely getting ready for making battle. it to the promised And maybe land. you could add a third reason that you take a census is if you are a youth pastor and you're counting all the kids getting on the bus, right? I mean, you don't want to leave anyone behind. And as someone who has left a student behind once before, we didn't get far, but a couple miles. 
Let me just say how important it is to take a head count. It's important. And and the Israelites here are getting ready to leave Sinai. I mean, they've been here for like two years. The first the first chapter says that it was it was twenty six months. months, two yep. years and two months after the Exodus. So they've been at, at Sinai about two years, and uh, and now they're leaving. Like now, this is kind of the okay. This is what we've been getting ready for, right? This isn't just about freedom from slavery. This is God sending us on to something better, and we've just been preparing for it. We've been building the tabernacle. We've been hearing about the laws and things like that, and now it's time to go. So the number that the census gives us is 603,550 men. Right? I mean, that's correct, isn't it? I think that's men, and yeah. I think it's men over 20. I'm not 100% sure on that. Because they're counting for military. Right, and, they're counting and you'll for see, military. I think it's in Chapter 1 that it says this, that starting at age 20 and up is when you can serve uh, in the military. Yeah, and it goes through tribes, and it talks about how many are in each of the tribes. And, um, yeah, there's people from each tribe who are assigned to like count and things like that. Another thing that I felt like is really cool and it's worth pointing out here, <clears throat> excuse me, is you might notice a little bit of a difference in the tribes. It's not the 12 sons of Jacob anymore. And one reason for that is something you learn, I, I guess you learn it towards the end of chapter one, and it's that, wait a minute, we didn't count the Levites. Yeah, Levites and don't get counted anymore. We'll get to that later because they get counted for something else. So it throws off the number 12. So that means we've got 11 tribes now. And so what we do to fix that is instead of there being a tribe of Joseph, Joseph gets two tribes, one for each of his sons named Ephraim and Manasseh. And so, and sometimes they're called the half tribes. Like as we're reading through the prophets, we might you might hear the half tribe of Ephraim, the half tribe of Manasseh, something like that. Um, and it's funny because, really, if you think that this was maybe put together later in history and then looking back, that really, you know, this goes all the way to—it it probably instead of starts with people and then ends with land, which yeah. is where we're going in the book of Numbers, the way they were thinking about it probably was starting with the land, you know, the different counties or states that mm-hmm. you might call it, mm-hmm. and going backwards to the heads of the tribes. Either way, I think it's it's worth noting that that number 12 is preserved, right? That there's a way to preserve the 12 tribes and allow the Levites to fulfill what their duty ends up being to the tabernacle. Yeah, I hope you right now are thinking about the 12 disciples that followed Jesus. And when Judas Iscariot uh, unfortunately left the group, that they went right out and they replaced him with a guy named uh, Matthias. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely two, 12. So they keep the number 12. And then in chapter 2, we break down how they camp. Because, Which, now, I mean, we've talked about the tabernacle. We're building the tabernacle. And now we get to, okay, well, what happens when you actually are hiking through the wilderness and then you strike camp? Which, I mean, let's keep carrying out this whole youth minister analogy here. This is when the youth pastor stands at the front of the, the uh, charter bus and says, all right, 11th grade boys, you go here. 12th grade girls, you go here. 9th grade boys, you go here. We're starting to mobilize the groups. Yeah, the senior high always get the best room. That's right. And, I mean, uh, and you know, the and if scrubs, they don't, the just middle schoolers, pure anarchy breaks out. Right? Middle schoolers are sleeping on the floor most of the time, that kind of stuff. And and it's not like that with the camp arrangement. Basically, there's three tribes on each side, and they they're assigned sides. You know, north, south, east, and west. And um, yeah, I, 
I didn't find any real deep theology in that other than, I mean, some have said that if you, if you draw those out in straight lines, that it kind of makes a cross. I don't, I don't really think that's the point because it probably makes more sense that they might've been in a circle or a square in order to provide some kind of boundary around the camp. It seems like the point is that the tent of meeting or the tabernacle stays in the center of the camp and the tribes provide some sort of border. I mean, think about the tabernacle itself. It's organized by borders, right? Yeah, yeah. it's the so inner it would, the inner circle is the holy of holies, yeah. and then you work out. And and even outside the the tabernacle, you've got the priests and the Levites camping right there. And then outside Everybody beyond else, that right. is the other twelve. So it really makes a whole lot more sense to me, at least, if you look at the other tribes as kind of like the first border around the tabernacle, which is their tents and their things and, you know, all that stuff. I think that's the the theological way to think about that. And when we get to chapter five, we're gonna be we're gonna see, you know, again, okay, now that now that we've got the camp laid out, what happens if someone is impure? What happens if someone has touched something that's dead or has a skin disease or something like that? And of course they get pushed out all the way to the edge of camp, right? So right. which again kind of Make sure you don't miss the fact that everything plays into the organization and the importance of the tabernacle. Absolutely. So so then we get in chapter 3 to the Levites. And basically what it does is it breaks down – well, I hope that didn't make a noise there. Uh, my calendar is reminding me of something coming up on, on, on uh, my schedule That's here. very sweet of it. Thanks, calendar. What was I talking about? Levites. Talking about Levites. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a separate count for the Levites, and and they're not counted as 20 and up. They're counted as 30 and up. Which is interesting. I mean, there's no explanation given in the scriptures about it. I mean, I read a commentary where, you know, that maybe is inferring that there's some additional either level of knowledge and education required, or maybe even a level of spiritual maturity that's required for these Levites to carry out their care and their duty around the tent of meeting. So you wouldn't even be like old enough to be a Levite yet, would Dude, you? Dude, I would just still be kicking it, man. I, I wouldn't have a day job. I'd just still chilling, do whatever I want. Hanging that's out. Right. I wouldn't be crunching any numbers. Chasing like the ladies. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, looking back, I think I definitely wasn't mature enough to be in ministry at at 30 or before 30. I mean, I was, and I really uh, sometimes feel bad for those kids in those churches that— uh, Yeah, and I mean, some things never change, right? <laughs> well, I'm just like 31 now, so it's— uh, it's Just over the hump, So, huh? yeah, it breaks down the Levites into the three sons of Levi, which are Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Which, in chapter 4, they get special duties, or they get certain responsibilities, I guess you could say, for what they're in charge of. They do, yeah, and they come up to—so there's 22,000 of them, which is cool, and and that count is actually from one month old and up, but they're not allowed to serve till they're 30 and up, so they're all counted, 22,000. But, but the reason that's significant is because then the next thing God says is, all right, remember how I told you in Exodus and Leviticus that all the firstborn are mine. Yeah, so go back to Passover in your head. What led them out of Egypt was had, you know, firstborns. Yeah, blood on the doorpost in order to rescue right. your firstborns. Right. Um, and God says, I'll tell you what, instead of taking all the firstborns, I will just take the Levites, and they will be mine. The Levites will be mine. And so we count up the total number of Levites, which is 22,000 even, which have you ever counted anything up and it's that big a number? And it's Anyway, whatever. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. thing. So then God says, go through and count all the firstborns, and then let's, let's 
Let's settle up. Let's settle up. <laughs> exactly. Mean, that's what it and is. And it turns out that there are 22,273 firstborns. So there are 273 firstborns that Israel owes God. How do we pay that? Specifically owes God five shekels for each additional firstborn that surpasses the number of Levites. So they owe God 1,365 shekels for an additional 273 firstborns. This is blowing my mind. And of course, that gets paid to the tabernacle, which gets paid to the priests, basically, and the Levites. I mean, this is... This is the uh, the reconciliation, the redemption, I guess, if you want to call it, of the firstborns. Really interesting thing. It's, I mean, theologically speaking, it's just this this theme throughout Scripture that the firstborns are gods. They belong to God, and uh, it's it's kind of um, yeah, the firstborn of all things belong to God. Anyway, cool stuff. So then we actually get in, like you said a minute ago, to the uh, the uh, marching orders for. The three tribes of the Levites, yeah, the Gershonites, I mean, Kohathites, and Merorites. And so remember, we're boots on the ground, we're mobilizing, right? They're moving towards the promised land, and that's obviously going to include breaking down and taking with them the tent of meeting. And, and all then, the stuff in it. Yeah, and then reconstructing it without improperly touching the sacred things for the new loca- like. Yeah, you can't improperly touch the things, and you guys might remember the story of a guy named Uzzah who accidentally like yep. touched the ark and died. Yep. We'll get to that later, but yeah, th- there's a lot of instructions here about how to break it down, how to set it up, who's allowed to touch what, who's allowed to look at what. And so um, first we start with, and you might have noticed if you read chapter 3, the order of Levi's sons are Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. You get to chapter four, though, and we start with Kohath. Gives us the old switcheroo. So if you were looking for another example of the second son getting the priority in Scripture, here it is. Kohath, the Kohathites, uh, are the ones charged with carrying the Holy of Holies and the most holy things in it, you know, the Ark of the Covenant uh-huh. and the uh, the... Not the altar, but the the table that has the the fire that never goes out on it. Um, someone is someone is in their car right now screaming at Clay the answer, and I hate it when I lose stuff like that. But anyway, <laughs> the Kohathites they're like the ones that are really set aside. And remember that that name Kohath or Kohathites. Uh, they're going to come up again later. They play a pretty significant role in the history of Israel. So look for them later on. That might be something that otherwise you would have just glossed right over. Uh, the Gershonites then are listed next, and they're called to carry the curtains and the the implements that were kind of in the outer court. Which carrying the curtains, can I just say, sounds riveting. I mean, I, and and all of these were like had had rules, and I'm not sure if they're if they're expressly said here, but like I remember part of the problem with the story of Uzzah is they were carrying the ark on a on a cart hauled by an ox, mm-hmm. but the ark is to be carried like through with poles stuck through the rings on the sides of it. So four men are carrying it at a time. Right. There's really specific instructions about how to carry these things. And I don't know about you, man, I've been hiking before with a heavy backpack and I've also had to hike, you know, a short distance where you're actually carrying something heavy like that on your shoulder. And that is just, that's miserable. Yeah, and they're not they're not taking uh trails. They're not taking trails that have been cut out for them. They are going through the wilderness making their way. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, and then the Merorites are responsible for carrying the poles and all the, you know, stakes and things like that, all the hardware that goes with with the outer court and things such as that. Which, so, I mean, every. I, I think the important thing to take away here is that everything within the tabernacle, every curtain, every pole, every stake, every lamp, everything you find in there has meaning and significance and has a place while being transported. Yeah, and you are to treat it with care and sanctity. I mean, this is important. This is a big deal. Everyone else is out there breaking down their own personal tents and their porta johns and whatever else. The Levites, though, they have the responsibility of carrying the um, the tabernacle. And specifically, uh, God says in chapter 4, I think, to never let the Kohathite clan die out. Yeah, it's chapter four, verse seventeen. Do not, do not, do not let the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be cut off from the midst of the Levites, because you get it right. If that happens, then no one can carry the holy of holies. Yeah, like whoever, and and now projecting way forward, even when they were no longer mobile and they were in the temple. Still, the Kohathites play a key role in ministering to the inner sanctum of the temple. Mm-hmm. And, and if they're not here, then who does that? Which really starts to, I hope you guys are understanding now, a lot of the Old Testament points to the exile in Babylon and the crisis of faith that it created. Because all of a sudden, I mean, the tabernacle, I mean, the temple is destroyed, the ark is lost. And the lineage is mostly lost, too. So how do you come back and rebuild from that? Yeah, I mean, pay attention to what is being used and will continue to be used to create identity for these people, right? And then you get to something like the Babylonian exile and realize everything that has been used to create identity is taken. Yes, so much, so, so much of the Old Testament points to the Babylonian exile or was written during or right after the Babylonian exile or or assembled during that time. So you just kind of see how all of it is, who are we? Who is God? How are we supposed to live and be faithful in all of those things? And so, I, I don't know, I just love that it points to that. All right, is it time for chapter five? Here we go, man. Let's jump in. So we're done with the census part, at least the first census part. I know you're excited that there are two censuses. Is censuses? Or is it sensi? That does. That excites me greatly. There's another one coming up in the book, and we're going to get to it, not today, but another time. But chapter five really gets into now, okay, let's put all this stuff into practice. So if you were thinking, man, I miss Leviticus purity laws, you are in luck with chapter five. Here we are. We we're get right a back. Good old fashioned flashback here. Only now it's less um it's less like an instruction manual for the priests, and it's more like, okay, here's how here's how you might really work this out. Yeah, and it's and it's a little shorter too. It's shorter, it's it's I, I want to say a little more practical in the sense of that it's very, very specific and, and seems like it was written for a specific purpose to address us, you know, some, I don't know. Going back to the youth group metaphor, I mean, if you're in a church that doesn't have a, a special weird rule set because of something that happened in the youth group. Like, oh, yeah, we don't do this anymore because of, you know. Yeah, like you're no longer allowed to have henna face tattoos on beach trips. Like if, if that's not a rule in your youth group, then and yes, there's a story behind that specific rule. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it right now. The point is, it starts off and it's like, okay, how to keep purity in the camp. 
chapter five starts off. If someone's got a skin disease, right. something we, like we that. We go back to the skin. Yeah. They, they need to go outside the camp and go back to Leviticus to see how long they're supposed to wait and how to be cleansed and all that kind of stuff. And then if, if someone takes something or hurts someone mm-hmm. else, here's how mm-hmm. you make restitution. And then we come to chapter five, verse 11. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and you you gave some special attention to this on Twitter this week, which I think it merited, right? It's a it's a section of scripture that you read, and then you say, "What the heck did I just read?" Yeah, it's it's pretty difficult. I'm gonna I'm gonna read just a little bit here, and I'm reading NIV because that's what I've got in front of me. But it, it says this in in verse 16. This is after this is all under the pretext of if a husband suspects his wife of cheating, and and. I think it's important that we mentioned just a minute ago that we're starting off with purity and restitution. Yep. That this is about how to make wrong things right. Well, what if you what if you're a guy and you believe your wife has been cheating on you? How do you do that? And and there's nothing that she can say to convince you otherwise. I mean, it seems like that's what would lead a couple to this point. Yeah, right? maybe she's pregnant and like you've been off to war or something like that. I mean, maybe thinking about David and Bathsheba, you right. know, those thinking kinds of things. about what Uriah was thinking, right? Yeah, yeah, those mm-hmm. kinds of things. So here's what it says, verse 16. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. After the priest has had the woman stand before the Lord... He shall loosen her hair and place in her hands the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, If no man has slept with you and you have not gone astray and become impure while you were married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband and you have defiled yourself by sleeping with a man other than your husband, here, the priest is to put the woman under this curse of the oath, quote, may the Lord cause your people to curse and denounce you when he causes your thigh to waste away and your abdomen to swell. May this water that brings a curse into your body so that your abdomen swells and your thigh wastes away. So just to be clear, we have a priest having a woman drink a potion that if she is guilty, will have some consequences in her body. And if she is not guilty, will not have any consequences in her body. And if this sounds like the way you would determine if a woman was a witch during the Salem witch trials, I think there's a pretty close similarity. Yeah. If if you're thinking that, then there's nothing I can say to convince you otherwise, because I mean... Do you know how much restraint it's taking right now for me not to quote Monty Python? I mean, all I can think about is... Which? (laughs) What else floats? Very small rocks. (laughs) So, I mean, okay, first of all, what do we do with this, Ross? Yeah, I think... Okay, so first of all... There's a couple things that rubbed us the wrong way and should rub you the wrong way, right? The first thing when I got to the end of this that rubs me the wrong way is, okay, so let's say the woman did not sleep around, right? That she did not commit adultery and the man was convinced that she had, and it turned out she didn't. Are there any consequences for him for putting his wife through this shameful and oh no no there's not and i it's mean explicitly at the end of the chapter exactly. it says there's no consequence so for the man that there's one thing that rubs me the wrong way as soon as i get to the end of of uh chapter five it's like well, okay there's a double standard there 
So let me just read a few of the things that I, I tweeted out this week. First of all is, okay, yes, this is uncomfortable. Yes, it's bothersome. Yes, there's a lot. First thing to think about is, okay, context. This is a patriarchal society. Which, which explains what's rubbing me the wrong way. But still, I mean, I think it's worth getting it out there. It's a patriarchal society. That's the way it's structured. And it's a patriarchal society pre-scientific method. I mean, pre, you know, um, Renaissance. This is, this is, we have no, you know, you know, uh, no other science. I mean, it was a very magical worldview for those familiar with that term. And, and also that, um, the ownership of the land depended on patriarchal lineage. Like this is where we're going. I mean, the and, book of numbers ends with division of the land. And remember, we just talked about the imported, the importance of family lines and family trees, right? Of, of, keeping uh, lineage pure. Another thing to think about is that there's a possibility that this is describing, and we already briefly touched on it, that it could be when a woman is pregnant and and the husband feels like he's not the father. And of course, we don't have DNA tests in this time and things such as that. And so this is a way, and you'll notice that if that's the case, then when you hear stories um, or when you hear phrases like uh, the belly swelling or the thigh sagging, and, and to be clear, thigh is probably a euphemism for um, more private parts, then then what could be being described here is a miscarriage. Right. What What is affected within the woman's body is her reproductive organs, right? Somehow, right. Yeah. And that's how it ends with if she's not affected, then it, it says that she is clear to uh, become pregnant or something such as that. Or, or if she is already pregnant, that it is the husband's. Right. So, and then, I mean, well, you've already mentioned the unfairness. Um, and, and then one more thing, and it's just this, it's that... This is one of those really, really difficult passages in Scripture. If if your view is just, you know, if it's very concrete and everything, you know, like like God's Word says it, I believe it, that settles it kind of deal, is, is this is a difficult one. And I would love to hear from you. Like, if you are really, really hardcore literalist about things, how do you deal with this passage? Right, because— I don't think we're going to be able to find anyone that thinks this is how a matter of marital discrepancy should be handled, something like this. I consider myself pretty close to a literalist on Scripture. I mean, I hold it in a super high regard, and uh, but but I don't know anyone <laughs> who would who would ever think that this is the way to handle that kind of right that kind of thing, marital unfaithfulness or or pregnancy by something else. I mean. <laughs> Thankfully, we've got, you know, like uh, Maury or uh, what was the guy that used to have the talk show? Uh, Pretty sure it was Maury. Yeah, whatever. Was it? Oh, was it? No, oh, it was know. the other guy, and I forgot his name now, but they would all chant his name, and then they Jerry. would- Jerry. That's it. Jerry Springer. That's it. Jerry. 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 <laughs> That's how we handle our disputes. <laughs> Golly, we're only in episode 16, and we got a Jerry Springer reference, Ross. Took us a while to get there, but should have known it'd be numbers. I'm glad. I'm glad we made it finally. So that that deals with the 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 weird story in in chapter five about how to deal with an unfaithful wife, um, and then that brings us to number six. But remember, I think the bigger thing is that it's all about, and this might not make it better, but it's all about restitution. 
It is. It's because about- this is about land, and it's about passing down land to our descendants. And if a man feels like he's passing down his land to someone else's child, that's a problem, and it we got to have a way to work it out. Right. So here, here is a way to work it out. Chapter 6. Nazarites. And that should sound familiar, but this is the first time we read about it in Scripture where someone can take a Nazarite vow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love it. These are the black belts of faithfulness. These are the ones who yeah, have what decided it, they are going to ramp up their holiness and their purity for what, God. What my translation says about it at the beginning of chapter 6, if a man or a woman should anyone act exceptionally to make a Nazarite vow. This is like, are you looking to go the extra mile? Are you looking to have a period of time in your life where you're extra devoted to God? Then the Nazarite vow is for you. These are pro level Christians That's here. Right. These are That's these right. are like level seven jujitsu masters. That's what they are. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. So, but okay, this is really cool though because we are going to hear about Nazarites later. You guys may remember that Samson was a Nazarite, and so we all know that one of the things that a Nazarite's not supposed to do is cut their hair. Uh, one of the things you may not recognize is that a Nazarite vow was generally just for a time. So you set aside a time, maybe a few months or a year, something like that. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more when we get to Samson. But spoiler alert, I mean, Samson is a Nazarite that doesn't do what Nazarites are supposed to do other right. than the hair. I and mean, Samson's if you, also a Nazarite for life. If you, Yeah, and, and, and he didn't actually make the vow. His mom made it for him while he was in the womb. Oh, my gosh. This is – I can't wait to get to Samson. Anyway, so – Three vows that Nazarites are to take. One is that you never touch a dead body. Second one is that you don't go down to the vineyard. Right. You don't drink the wine. Yep. And then third is that you don't cut your hair. Which everyone, if you've read the story of Samson, you know that you're not supposed to cut your hair because that's what causes him to lose his strength. Right. That's the end goal there. I mean, of course, spoiler alert also, Samson also broke the other Nazarite vows too, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. The point is if if... This is what I think is cool about the whole Nazarite system is that God has set aside a way for those who feel especially called to devote their life, at least for a time, just to God. And I'm thinking about nuns and monks Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. desert fathers and mothers. Yeah, this whole theme of of how we would recognize ascetics, right? People that have decided to get rid of possessions and to let their hair grow out and to be one with the land or one with God and what that implies and what they restrict themselves from. And I mean, it's kind of beginning to, to form up here. And you might, I mean, you might feel this way also about, uh, you know, your pastor and, uh, and those of you, those in your life who have felt a call to ministry and maybe left a career or something like that to, to go and, and become a preacher or something like that. Um, this is for those, and I love that. I love that God is already now. We have set aside, remember, how to become pure, how to be holy. We've just finished all of Leviticus, which talks about how to make sure you're in right standing with God before you enter the sanctuary, things like that. Right. But now, what if what if I want to set aside my whole life for God, for, at least for a time? Right. What if What if I want more? What if, What if I feel called to do more than that? If, Absolutely. Yeah, it's cool. It's I really, really cool. I really love that the Bible offers that, that the Old Testament, I mean, we're only in the fourth book of the Bible now, and we already have that set aside as a way of life to devote your whole life to God. Um, let me just throw this out there. I, I, 
had an interesting conversation with someone that I didn't really know. Um, it was actually on a radio show one time who called in and, and said he felt called to ministry. I had shared my call and, and he called in. And, uh, and the first thing I told him was, you know, speak with your pastor. If you're feeling like that right now, if you're feeling like maybe God's putting you in a position to um, earn that black belt in Christianity— Obviously, that's a joke. And maybe but, it doesn't. Maybe it's not specifically a call to ministry for you, but you're just feeling like you should be doing more, right? Yeah. Go talk with your pastor. Yeah. Or give one of us a shout, DM us, something like that. Who knows? You might end up on the show. Whoop. Roll that <laughs> dice. Now no one's going to DM <laughs> us. And that gets us to something that I think is very familiar at the end of Chapter 6 of Numbers. It is a benediction that we close worship with most Sundays. Right, right. And going and, all the way back to the youth group metaphor, I know a lot of youth groups end their meetings with this And benediction. surely you've heard it, right? Surely you've heard it. Um, yeah, so before we read it, I do want to end on it. Before we read it, I think it's worth, like, let's take a look at where we are in numbers right now so that we can kind of maybe get a 30,000-foot view for the rest of the book. And we've kind of alluded to this a few times that Leviticus very much felt like a manual given to priests. And it was. That's what it is. Numbers now is like, okay, it's almost, man, I'm about to, I am wearing out this youth trip metaphor, but I'm going to wear it out some more. I love it, honestly. Leviticus is like when the parents get all the permission slips and the what to pack lists and what to expect lists and things like that. And then numbers is like the morning before everyone loads up and it's like, okay, here we go. Now it's time to go. And that's what's happening. They are literally packing up, leaving Sinai, heading off into the desert where none of them have ever been before and they've never been where they're going either. And let's just say too, by the time we get to the end of numbers, they will be on the doorsteps of the promised land with some folks even starting to settle there. I mean, numbers gets us right up to the promised land. Yeah, those who are unfamiliar, you might or might not know that Deuteronomy is basically just a recap. I mean, Deuteronomy is a recap, and it literally happens with Moses and the whole tribe camped on the mountains overlooking the promised land. And so Numbers is the chronological story that gets us from Sinai to the Jordan River. I mean, Mm -hmm. like right there. Yep. And yep. so this is very, very boots on the ground, granular. I mean, this is concrete action, real things happening. And there's some cool stories in the book of Numbers, too. And we're going to get to those. I mean, this, this is going to be a fun book. Um, and, and again, it gets us to the promised land. That's where we're going. We really are going on a journey through the wilderness to the promised land, starting now. So there's a blessing at the very end of Numbers chapter 6. And what I love most about it is God gives this blessing to Aaron and the priests and says, say this blessing over the Israelites. And when you do that, you will put my name on the Israelites and I myself will bless them. So friends, do you want to say anything else before we end no, this? No, I think, I think we just need to read it. I want you to read it because you got the NIV in front of you. I'm just going to say the version that I know All from right. heart. Friends, we love you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Friends, go in peace, and we'll catch you next week. Oh.